godly and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity, purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise you. And there, reading from St. Luke, 21st chapter, there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon, in the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking upon those things which are coming upon the earth. For the power of heaven shall be shaken. Then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Heavenly Father, again tonight, attempt on our weakness, Father, to be able to bring us to the full realization of the happenings in our world today. Father, I pray that you would take this which thou hast already anointed, give unction into it, speak through it, control, control my thoughts and my mind, let me only be a voice box for the thinkings of the Holy Spirit. Father, and by the same token that you would capture and seize the thoughts and the hearts and the very inner source of man tonight, and let him receive, even if it be for a moment, let him receive the engrafted word of God. Father, that it might challenge our lives and wake us up and realize that perhaps we're living in a fool's paradise. Father, men that is running toward the edge of the cliff, blindfolded, seeing not the disaster that lays before him, living lives of selfishness, Father, while our nation goes bankrupt and our children run rampant, Father, and the last final great day of the Lord draweth near. Father, might we be also ready, or in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Strengthen us tonight. Father, and we'll honor you and give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Going to endeavor again, at the best of our ability, <coughs> to bring before you some thought-provoking things concerning our nation, our lives, and the world as we enter into the last phase of world powers. We want to talk about at times of testing and a time for testing comes to all nations regardless of how great they are. Babylon received hers and failed. Assyria received hers and fell short. Greece went by the same way, Medo-Persia, Rome. Judah and Israel of old found a time when they were tested by Almighty God and they failed. We've entered in in one year into the catastrophic 19 and 80s, a time which scientists say is a time of testing of the will of people, of uh, the resources, of our agriculture, everything they say by the end of the 80s will be in dire trouble. Agriculture, they look for famines. Ecologists look for the world to be so covered with smog and what have you that it would contribute to thousands of deaths. Economists look for a complete collapse of our economy as is. And while they're doing this and looking for this, they are struggling fanatically trying to find a way of survival. The Bible tells us not to be ignorant. Now, in bringing these things together, I need not call your attention to it, I don't suppose, but I will. It's not like preaching. In fact, I would rather preach any time than to try to get a series and sources of things together where I have to read because I don't want to miss anything because... If you're not careful, at times it will get boring to individuals and their minds begin to wonder. And a preacher can tell when minds are beginning to wonder, and it's hard on him 
And it's also hard on you because you're missing things that Almighty God is wanting us to hear. So we're going to go into some of the great tests. There's five great tests of a nation in five different ways, and we'll go as far with this as we can. But I want to go before you something you might have known, but in case you didn't, perhaps we could bring it to your mind. On January the 20th, of course, 1981, Ronald Reagan became the 40th President of the United States. Now, 40, of course, is a biblical number of testing. The United States will indeed be tested before the Supreme Council of God during the present administration, just as ancient Israel of old was tested during times of moral and spiritual crisis. In other words, what we are about to undergo the condition of our land is nothing new for Israel. History declares the collapse of her. Bible declares the collapse of her and the reasons. And yet for some strange reason, man can never learn from history. Nation after nation disintegrates, falls apart from within because immorality, crime and violence take the scene, lawlessness enters in, and no turn to God. The current executive head of the nation began his administration under a bad sign since every president elected in the 20th year since 1840 has died in office. 1840, William Henry Harrison, ninth president, caught pneumonia on Inauguration Day and died 31 days later. Abraham Lincoln, elected in 1860, 16th president, was shot by John Wilkes Booth on April 14th. 1865 at Ford's Theater, Washington, D.C. He died the next day. 1880, James Abram Garfield, 20th president, was shot by a mentally disturbed office seeker on July the 2nd, 1881. He died on September the 19th, 1881, from a wound received. In the 1900s, William McKinley, 25th president, was shot at the Pan American Exposition, Buffalo, New York, on September the 6th, 1901. He died a week later. 1920, Warren G. Harding, 29th president, become ill while returning for a trip to Alaska, and he died in San Francisco, August the 2nd, 1923. 1940, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 32nd president, died of a stroke at Warm Springs, Georgia, April the 12th, 1945. 1960, John F. Kennedy, 35th president, was assassinated in Dallas on November the 22nd, 1963. Most sources, such as the World Almanac, don't name the killer of the late President Kennedy because there's still uncertainty as to whether Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone or exactly what his role might have been. Now, from all signs, it seems as if our president, when he run, was aware of this ominous sign. And he thought perhaps at his age, it would be well worth taking a chance. But in any event, aside from the hex, President Reagan warrants special attention because he is our 40th president. That the next four years, now this not only comes from Bible scholars, but also from those that I just mentioned, that the next four years will determine the future of the United States beyond question. What this leadership does is going to determine which direction our nation is going to take. Now then, we have been told for some years, especially here and in other congregations, that there does come a time of reckoning. We have been told that there will come a time when our nation will have to decide which course that she is going to follow. That time is not in the future, that time is here. Everything declares that it is under the leadership of this present president and his administration. The United States will either witness a revival of national identity and purpose. God help us. God help us so that when we will be so starved for something other than just the traditional religiosity that we will accept the message of who we are and what our purpose is here in this world. God help us. Bring us 
to our knees till that day if necessary. But it, it will either witness a revival where our national identity and purpose will be formulated and we will follow that or we will continue to decline and be absorbed as the rest of the nations into the international communist movement, coming very slyly. And it's symbolic that our 40th president should be elected in this national crisis. Very symbolic and also right along with Bible prophecy. It's often been pointed out in the histories of the United States and, and Israel that there are amazing parallels. I like this. I, I read after this individual, and he just was right on the borderline of saying who we were, and yet for some reason just would not crash the gates and say it. But anyway, you can see that through the histories of the United States and read biblical prophecy of Israel, there's some amazing parallels. Abraham received a message from God concerning a land that would be set aside for his descendants, a people who would bear the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ to all nations. And this is astonishing. Christopher Columbus said of his calling to discover America. How many of you ever really ever thought about Christopher Columbus having a calling of God to discover America? Now, most of us have heard that Christopher Columbus discovered America, and that quite by accident. But because he discovered something great, something magnificent, it was challenging and thought-provoking to me, and some way or other it never really lodged. But yet it makes sense he had a direct divine calling from the time he was born, so to speak, that he prepared himself. I want you to listen to what he has to say in the book America, God Shed His Grace on Thee by Robert Flood, pages 30 and 31. It says, I prayed to the most merciful Lord about my heart's great desire. He gave me the spirit and the intelligence for the task. Notice what Christopher Columbus's life was made out of. Notice the things that he had to know and had to school himself in to be prepared for God's task. Really kind of gets a hold of this thing that you have to remain ignorant and everything's done by the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? <laughs> After all, it is done by the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit enables. It's an enablement. It's a help. It's a not a do-it-yourself thing. And he said, I prayed about my great heart's desire, and he gave me the spirit and the intelligence for the task seafaring, astronomy, geometry, arithmetic, skill in drafting spherical maps and placing correctly the cities, rivers, mountains, and ports. I studied cosmology, history, chronology, and philosophy. It was the Lord who put into my mind the sail from here to the Indies. All who heard of my project rejected it with laughter ridiculing me. There is no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit because he confronted me with the rays of marvelous illumination from the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scripture testifies in the Old Testament by prophets and in the New Testament by our Redeemer Jesus Christ that this world must come to an end. The signs of when this must happen are given in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Our Redeemer Jesus Christ said that before the end of the world, all things must come to pass that have been written by the prophets. These are great and wonderful things for the earth, and the signs are that the Lord is hastening the end. The fact that the gospel must still be preached to so many lands in such a short time, this convinces me that there is a need for God's people to gather together. Hallelujah. This convinces me, as I said, from the book America, God Said His Grace on Thee, by Robert Flood, pages 30 and 31. Some more parallels. The Israelites left Egypt because of persecution, wandered in the wilderness in search of a place of freedom, a land flowing with milk and honey promised by God. Parallel, many of the early settlers in America, especially the Puritans, were refugees from religious oppression. They were willing to risk the future in the wilderness 
in order that they might worship the Lord God in spirit and in truth. Oh, God, give us that desire again for blood-bought freedom. The whole world is trying to destroy and take away from us the precious privilege of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And when this nation was established, it was intended that we should worship him on the streets, in the schools, in the churches, on our jobs, wherever we might be, because this is the way our nation was founded. Slyly, easily, while the church slept up and while the church slept, the enemy came in and slyly, quickly stole our freedom from us. And right now, churches all over the United States of America are just beginning to get a tinge of waking up to freedom that is already gone. Friend, freedom that is already gone is hard to win back. It would be easier to fight to keep it than let it go and try to get it back. But get it back we must. And not only that, but we must reclaim that which the devil has slipped in and taken from us. And we cannot do it when our seats have do nothing. We cannot do it agreeing with every false philosophy that comes along. We cannot do it by living our life at ease above criticisms. There comes a time when we have to take a stand. We have to take a stand in our community, be disliked by it. Have to do certain things God demands simply because God demands them. And of course, you'll be peculiar. There'll be something wrong with you. But they were willing to risk a future in the wilderness. In other words, they loved their freedom and their ability to worship God so much as they wanted to, when they wanted to, that they was willing to suffer death, desolation, whatever it might be, in order to find a place where they could. And then the lives and blood has bought us this wonderful privilege of sitting in this wonderful sanctuary on padded pews, listening to the Word of God. Blood has bought us this. And by the same token, God has ordained it. God has ordained it. Now, God would like to see every place, every land in the world with the luxury that we have. And the only way we got this is obedience to God. The only thing to keep destruction from us is back to God. Down on our knees, fervent in prayer, desires, living a life not of selfishness, but one together with God. When the pilgrims landed at Plymouth in 16 and 20, they signed a document called the Mayflower, Mayflower Compact, and it's dated A.D. 16 and 20. It began like this. In the name of God, amen. We whose names are unwritten have undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of Christian faith and the honor of our king and country a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combined ourselves together unto one civil body for the purpose of spreading the gospel to the lost. Hallelujah. I said, hallelujah. I said, glory to God for this fact. The land of Israel was divided into twelve parts with provisions made for the thirteenth tribe, the tribe of Levi. Parallel, the United States began with original thirteen colonies. The majority of the early settlers felt as Israel of old did that God had given them this land to establish a new witness in the world for his glory. The essence of the Declaration of Independence is captured in the words we hold, these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Friend, I don't know. Sometimes I, I shudder to look at it to see what the world has taken away from us that our Constitution has given us. And we seem complacent enough to accept it. I'm talking about us. When the Constitutional Convention was on the verge of breaking up, Benjamin Franklin entreated the delegates this way. How has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understandings? 
I have lived so a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see in this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without its notice, it is, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? I believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. Now, this speech had been in the Congress today. What do you think? For number one, we don't have we don't have a congressman with blood enough or nerve enough to make it. But if he did, every atheistic and humanistic organization of the nation would be up in arms about it. And while they were up in arms against this defenseless individual, the church of God would be sleeping and snoozing in the comforts of his own passion. You know that to be true as well as I do. Let's put the blame where it is. I've been considering these remarks by Jim Benjamin Franklin as we appraise the moral status of the United States. Under our 40th governmental administration, we can rightfully wonder if the last 50 years we have not been building another Tower of Babel. Babel simply means confusion, and it seems that never before has our American Republic been so confused as to our national purpose and our goal. If somewhere or somehow we could get into the minds and the mouths of those who are in the know that our purpose is not to be the strongest nation in the world, our purpose is not to feed those that are less fortunate or close them uh, with material things, and our purpose is to bring the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ into their lives and let this change them. But we have succumbed to materialistic thinking. Religiosity has taken the place of old-time gospel salvation. Intellectual sermons or speeches, so to speak, has taken the place of good old-fashioned, anointed, powerful word of God under the inspiration of the divine spirit of God. Mankind has loved to have it so. Our first testing, no surprise to many of us, or shouldn't be, our first testing is a testing in education. First the home, then the church, and then the nation. The future of any nation can be determined by the type of education that children receive in their homes. I want you moms and dads to quickly look over the past few years of your life and see how much education has been ministered through your mouths. How many times have you sat down and talked to little Mary and little Denny and what have you, and little Susie, and all of them, and sat down and talked to them about the divine plan of God for this nation and their lives and the coming of the end of the world. You see, education is important in homes. It's important in public and private institutes of learning. Moses understood this basic truth when he wrote in Deuteronomy things that it's not a stranger to you, 11, 18, and 21. Listen while I read them. Therefore shall you lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul, and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, a frontlet is a band that goes around your brow, four pieces of leather parchment, each piece containing a scripture, and was tied around your forehead, and hanging in between here was four pieces of scripture. That's what he was talking about. Symbolic of frontlets between your eyes, and ye shall teach them to your children, speaking of them, when thou sittest in thy house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down and when thou risest up, and thou shalt write them upon the doorpost of thine house and upon thy gates, that your days may be multiplied, and 
and the days of your children in the land which the Lord swore unto your fathers to give them as the days of heaven upon the earth. And when I read that, as much as I try to find a place or a break where there should never be any teaching, I can find none. Because teaching should always be, teach them to your children while you're sitting in your house, when you're walking with them by the way, and when you're lying down and when you're raising up, and write them on the doorpost of your house. Hallelujah. Let truth be up over the doorpost of your house. Let holiness prevail and prevail. And once we can find a way to do that, of all the calamities and plagues and sicknesses and danger that encompass round about us and enter into destruction can be avoided. The greatness of Israel rested upon the godly instruction of the youth of the nation. It has always been so with Israel of old and it's been so in our nation. Our nation began to go by the wayside when our youth began to go by the wayside. When Dr. Spock raised our kids without a path. Amen. When it was decided that kids knew enough to raise themselves. When you get them, get them up in their personal teenage years and our psychiatrists tell us how they're smart enough to go on their own and right then is when they need the most direction that they ever needed in their lives. Of course it's not easy. Of course it's hard. In the personal years, you've got a world out here that, that's uh, motivating them. But if God thought it impossible, he wouldn't have asked us to do it. He knew it could and should be done. But the greatness of Israel as a nation rested upon the godly instruction of a youth likewise. The founding fathers of our nation understood the same basic principle of national survival. The first schools in the United States were Christian schools which taught the students that God was the creator of heaven and earth and everything therein. you believe that? Now what do you suppose is taught in our schools today? And how do you suppose it got to be in there? We'll get to that a little bit later on. The United States has become a great nation while our children were being taught that God was, that man was created in the image of God, not evolved by one single cell microbe. And while we were teaching this, our nation came together and flourished and become the greatest power in the world. While we were teaching this. Now I challenge you to go back and look as to when this came in, and there you'll find the answer for your violence, for your rape, and for your ungodly things, and the degenerate condition of our nation. It started then. Amen, Amen Brother Oscar. And it continues until our day, and will continue until we reverse the situation and get our schools, our homes, and our nation back where it ought to be. These years are precarious years for the United States of America. We're teetering in the balance. Now the Gentile nations have proclaimed judgment upon them. That is their judgment. That's the way they will go. God's Israel doesn't have to suffer these things. It has all been in accordance to us. What we do with our lives, with our spirit, with our Holy Ghost, and what we do in our homes. We are left with a choice. In the bequest that established Harvard University, John Harvard laid down certain, this is a great educational institute. I want you to check out and see what it's doing today, but I want you to listen first. The educational principles that were to be faithfully observed in the school. He says, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main ends of his life and studies, to know God in Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all knowledge and learning, and see the Lord only giveth wisdom. Let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek Christ as Lord and Master. 
That's one of our great universities. This is the way it was set up. This is what the man that set it up wanted. But over the past 50 years, the so-called public educational system in the United States has come under the progressive domination of the humanistic organization. Humanist views are flaunted in our face everywhere. Our school and yet the very thing that God wanted in our nation has been taken from us without so much as one little outcry from those who should be crying. Now then, in Secular Humanism by Homer Duncan, page 30, a comparison of the Communist Manifesto and the Humanist Manifesto 1 and 2 reveal this. Both deny the supernatural, both deny divine revelation, both seek to control the educational system, both seek to destroy all religions except their own, both promote world government, both seek to apostate Christendom for their own ends. In 1976, humanist Paul Blanchard made this boast. I think that the most important factor moving us toward a secular society has been the educational factor. Our schools may not teach Johnny to read properly, but the fact that Johnny is in school until he's 16 tends to lead toward elimination of religious superstitions. The average child now acquires a high school education, and this education contends or fights against Adam and Eve and all the other myths of alleged history. This comes from Humanists from March and April 1976, page 17. In other words, it doesn't matter whether they learn how to read or write or not, that we're going to instill our humanistic views in their little minds, and you're going to know that they've been there. And all you've got to do is check around into the minds of a few that has been there, and you'll find solidarity in there. Only those who have kept God's hand in theirs. Only those mothers and fathers that have prayed and have fought for their children are able to emerge from this jungle of humanism with anything in their hearts and minds of their children about the creation and God Almighty. And the saints tonight, take it from your old fuddy-duddy pastor. They cannot survive without worship in home and laws of God taught in homes. They cannot survive. They cannot survive without a unity of a home. They cannot survive without peace in the home. They cannot survive this thing without God. It has to be God. And it's your responsibility. In 1978, Harry Kahn wrote, The Humanist Manifestos 1 and 2 were drafted in 1933 and 1973, respectively, and signed by leading humanists such as John Dewey, B.F. Skinner, and Sir Julian Huxley. These two documents define the philosophy that has been reshaping our society and is now the foundation of public education in the United States. Secular Humanism, page 19. In her paper, The Religion of Humanism in Public Schools, Barbara Morris writes, I often think about the religion of humanism being promoted in public schools, and without fail, I find myself asking where, oh where, are the Christians? Why do those who claim to be true followers of Christ permit this hoax to go unchallenged? Every Christian and every Christian church should be actively exposing and working to remove the godless religion from our public schools. One woman's efforts resulted in a ban of prayer and Bible reading. How is it that the people of a nation that claim to be predominantly Christian cannot route the religion of humanism from their schools? How is it? In several states today, there's a movement by some scientists who accept the biblical account of special creation as true origin of all things to have the genesis record presented in the classrooms as an alternate study to the theory of evolution. 
In Oklahoma, Dr. Edward Blick, professor of aerodynamics and nuclear engineering, has been active in helping to get a bill through the state legislature that would make this possible. One would think that Christians and especially church members would rally to this cause and this legislative effort. However, when the bill come up for consideration, we were alarmed at what happened. The story was told on the front page of February 5th, 1981, edition of the Daily Oklahoman. Quote, a bill to require that Oklahoma schools offer the creation theory. Whenever the theory of evolution is taught, suffered a major setback Wednesday. The bill's chances for passage this session are slim, although it is technically alive. The bill, known as HB 1158, calls for schools to give balanced treatment to the theories of creation science and evolution science. A news story reporting on the defeat of the bill pointed out that even ministers at the hearing disagreed. Some thought the bill would force Christian schools to teach evolution if they taught special creation, and some ministers, better than 60%, subscribed to the evolution theory itself. God help us. The humanists are united. The churches are not. There's your difference. And it makes you to wonder. And this is why our educational system becomes more materialistic, atheistic, communist in its teaching methods. Scientific atheism and making plans to further strengthen its hold over our schools and the nations. I quote from page 19 of the January 1981 edition of Science News, quote, discussing the evidence of evolution, Smithsonian Institution scientist Porter M. Keir, former director of the National Museum of Natural History, said, the word theory has done a great deal of damage and should be dropped, and the word evolution should stand alone. He says, because anti-evolutionism can have damaging effects on science education, it is time for scientists to speak out. The theme of next year's American Association for the Advancement of Science will be a science education, and tentatively it will include discussions of ways to combat creationism and the teachings of religion in our schools. That's on their format. Just the other day, I was watching television. I don't know if you watched the Donahue show that day or not. And knowing that he had given invitations to individuals that supposedly supported the creational theory, creationist theory, and those who supported the evolution. And to my surprise, four supporting evolution came, one supporting creation came. Outnumbered though he was, <laughs> hallelujah, he stood his ground for God. You could feel the Holy Spirit of God well up in him as he withstood all of these accusations and pointed them to the fundamental principles of our nation and had brass enough to say something I concur with. One of these days, people like you will not be in our nation. Ha <laughs> ha! Hallelujah. Glory to God. Hallelujah. He was looking for a cleansing of the nation. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Well, praise God. Hallelujah. Let's worship Him. Let's thank Him for that one individual. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we appreciate your presence. Hallelujah. You've always operated best when you were outnumbered. Thank God. Hallelujah. On national television, in his very first major address to the nation, our 40th president warned that due to irresponsible economics policies by our government, Judgment Day is at hand. He brought out that in spite of our multitudes of institutions of higher learning, our resources, our ingenuity, 
vast technical abilities and knowledge, we are being outproduced by other nations, and we are facing a national calamity because of it. According to our understanding of national history, that's according to mine, God had a hand in establishing the United States. <laughs> Hallelujah. Because he needed a place for Israel. Hallelujah. This nation, following the precepts of our founding fathers, became the mightiest nation in the world because we were God's principal witnesses to the world. Ninety percent of all the missionaries come from the shores of the United States of America. Through Christian gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is being proclaimed in spite of all of these things. I say let the church arise and be about its father's business. And if we can't do anything else, get in our closet every day down on our knees and say, God, send qualified men and women, boys and girls to stand against this onslaught of evil. Awake thy people, O God and make them realize the peril and the impending doom that is ours if we don't wake up. If you love your children, let me approach you another way. If you love your children, if you really are thinking of them, then get on your knees for our nation. Get on your knees just because of them if nothing else. But like all Israel, we have become wealthy, we forgot to continue to give God glory. Am I right on target? Instead, we have allowed atheistic humanism to dictate our course. And Jesus says, as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Today, right now, the United States is in the same condition as the antediluvians were when the flood came. Somebody wrote a book, and if God doesn't destroy the United States of America, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. If he doesn't do something to our nation, he'll have to apologize to those that he's destroyed by the flood. If there's one thing that we have in the United States of America that's keeping the horses back from running, and that is in spite of the world, God has a people and a church down on their knees. Cry out to God to spare thy people and give not thy heritage to the reproach of the heathen. That's the only thing. In Noah's day, they had Noah alone. Sodom and Gomorrah, they had Noah. God bless the church. Hallelujah. The reason for their downfall is the same as ours. And it's defined, I want you to listen to me. It was defined by Paul in Romans 1, 21, 22, and 23. Because of that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of an incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible men, and the birds and four-footed beasts, and creeping things, and listen to this, and even as they did not like to retain God through their knowledge. In other words, get him out of the schools, get him out of the streets, get him out of the churches. We don't want to retain him. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. If on a national basis we could get our theological thinking straightened out, then all the other problems would solve themselves. God's remedy for old Israel's national ills is just as applicable to the United States. And this is what he said to them, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will I hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. You see, God is not just in the soul-saving business. He's in the nation-saving business. Not only did he promise to forgive their sin, but to heal their lambs. One of the greatest trials and tests we're having is in the arms preparation. 
should we arm or should we not? The majority of so-called Christian people have come, on, have come out against arming. They, of course, are doves that proclaim peace. Leave it all to God. But I want to meet this, if you will allow me. One of the greatest trials which faced the United States during the 40th presidential administration is that is an arms race and the threat of nuclear war. Tribulation period, of course, that comes during it, the Battle of Armageddon is depicted in Revelation as a night of man's history. In the parable of the ten virgins recorded in the Olivet Discourse, the second coming of Jesus Christ is set at the midnight hour. Matthew 25, 6 says, And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. I'm going to repeat something because I feel like it's necessary. In the past month, in the January 19 and 81 edition of their bulletin, the Association of Atomic Scientists moved a minute hand on their doomsday clock to four minutes before midnight. And we quote from page one of this edition, and it tells you why. For the past 12 months, the bulletin clock has stood at seven minutes before midnight, but events have not stood still. As the year 1980 drew to a close, the world seemed to be moving unevenly, but surely closer to nuclear disaster. The clock must record this movement. Nuclear weapons, more and more ambiguously aimed at war fighting rather than war deterrence, are now being rapidly deployed by the East and the West in Europe. These evil signs of deterioration are cast into starker relief by the flat unwillingness of either United States or Soviet Union to reject publicly and in all circumstances the threat of one striking the other first. The U.S. and the USSR arms race demands our most urgent attention, but the deteriorating international scene with all of its ramifications must be recorded. Civilian hostages held in violation of international law for more than a year. The war between Iraq and Iran. The continued fighting in Afghanistan. The testing of a bomb in the atmosphere by China. The increasingly brutal repression of human rights political freedom in northern and southern countries alike, and confirmation, confrontation in Poland and in South Africa. No part of the world has been wholly free of increasing hostilities and conflict. Given this setting of tragic destabilization, and this is all they go by, the bulletin clock takes another step towards doomsday to four minutes before midnight. The entire world, the entire world, is at a threshold. During the last decade, each year has seemed to bring us closer to nuclear holocaust. So far, the new decade has seen this trend accelerating. Now then, they wrote this. They took all of these things together, and they're saying, in a sense, four minutes until the world destroys itself. Now, they're not looking for the coming of the Lord or anything like that. But their clock tells them that four minutes are those minutes are years or whatever. But it just depends on events. It don't depend on years or time. It depends on events and how quickly they happen as to how quick they move the clock up. And so within a year, and it's moved three minutes. Now the bulletin of atomic science uses this evident threat, and it is evident, of a nuclear holocaust to advocate world government. Now this is what they're saying this far. They want a world government. They want a unity of purpose so that this will not happen. They say it's the only way to keep us from destroying one another is to have a world government. Well, that's man's idea. That's what man thinks, and this of course will usher in the kingdom of the beast, and the beast's power will arise. But you and I know that man can never bring peace to this world. You and I know that the only peace that will ever be is when we invite the Prince of Peace to come and take up his abode. We know that. They say that if they could bring in a world government and a world dictator, that we could solve all problems. 
Page 37 of January 1981 edition of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists says, I am deeply worried about the present world situation. A fatal cause may be that we have been so indolent, if not timid, in pursuit of a new world order where one can live without armaments. See what I told you? Designing such a new world order is indeed a difficult task because it will be associated with some change of present political status and a change completely of society and perhaps a new world. You see what they're after and how slick they're doing it and how easy that they have got into our seminaries, our Bible schools, and have made doves, so to speak, of peace out of our ministers to say that we should never rearm. We should never be ready for anything. Now, if you'll give me time to finish this, I'm going to show you the reason that we should prepare as much as we should. I'm going to show you the biblical reason. Of course, these men don't offer suggestions how communist nations like Russia and China would fit into the framework, but the overwhelming superiority of communist forces is now awesome. The AP News release, release which appeared March the 1st 1980 said this, the gloomy former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger says the world is drifting, drifting before, toward a catastrophe in which our ways of life will come to an end. The only way to head it off, he told the Carnegie Institute lecture audience Wednesday night, is for the United States to embark on a crash program to wipe out the Soviet Union strategic arms advantage. If this gap remains the same and grows larger, some kind of political, some political disaster is inevitable. Kissinger said, we're living precariously and heading for disaster. Dr. Emil Gavrulik, G-A-V-E-R, Gavrulik, minister of the staff in, in the uh, radio church attended a seminar of the prominent military leaders of the free world in Washington, D.C. this past October. It was the consensus of the military experts that the United States had 1,000 days left to prepare for war with Russia. The Military Analysis magazine, Soldier of Fortune, made the following observation on page 28 of its March 1980 issue. By 1982 at the latest, the U.S. will enter the most dangerous period of its history. In order to avoid the risk of disastrous defeat, the U.S. must begin to take action now and surely cannot afford to put certain crash programs beyond the first days of a new administration. These crash programs should take our Minutemen missiles out of their holes and fit them with counterforce warheads. Fit Polaris and Poseidon with counterforce warheads and build a truly mobile MX. The country may not be able to complete these programs in time, but it can try. Most military experts agree that unless NATO forces and the United States retaliate with nuclear weapons, the Warsaw Pact armies can overrun all Europe within one week. The next four years will be an extreme time of testing for our president, for our nation in the area of meeting the challenge of the communist world. To survive without a nuclear war, or surrendering our national identity to a world government or a communist coalition of nations, will require wisdom far greater than that of Solomon. Now I want to draw a parallel, if you'll allow me, and then I'll try to close. Parallel of our day can be drawn between the situation today and that of Judah in 710 B.C. The army of Sennacherib of, of Assyria was sweeping everything before it. It destroyed almost everything. Those who were not put in slavery was killed. The northern army Israel had already been overrun, and the Assyrian army was sweeping toward Jerusalem. God's man Isaiah advised King Hezekiah of Judah to be prepared as best he could and above all to trust in the Lord. But the king received a disturbing warning. This is what it says in 2 Kings 19, 11, 13. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, 
by destroying them utterly. And shalt thou be delivered? Have the gods of the nation delivered them which my fathers have destroyed at Gozan, Haran, and Rezeph, and the children of Eden which were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad and the king of the city of Sepharvim, of Hena and Ivab? In other words, the threat of the city of Jerusalem was just as dire and final in those days as the threat of nuclear war to the citizen of the United States. Yet Hezekiah did not waver. He did not surrender. He prepared and then acted according to God's word. And Hezekiah received a letter of the hands of the messengers and read it. Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Hallelujah. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwelleth between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou, Lord of all the kings under the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Lord, bow down thine ear and hear. Open, Lord, thine eyes and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which has sent him to reproach the living God. Our truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nation and their lands, cast their gods into fire, for they were no gods, but the works of men's hands wood and stone. Therefore they have destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, I beseech thee, save thou us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. What I'm trying to say is until our governmental leaders how long with our House of Representatives and Congress on down to the minute particles of humanity which include you and I spread these things before God and say they're reproaching you. God spare us and save us. It will ultimately destroy us. He was no match for this army. No way in the world. He did the best he could. He armed as best he could. And this is all we can hope for because we are years behind. But should we sit and allow them to rearm us with dull peaceful positions? Or should we not do exactly as Hezekiah did and do the best he can and do the best you can and then wait for Almighty God to intervene and the fight the fight for us? That night, a plague swept through the Assyrian army camp, and 185,000 soldiers died. <laughs> Hallelujah. Friend, God is controlled. God can wave his hand. Hallelujah. God can send the floods, the fire, the plagues, whatever he can send it, has and still will. And the women that had to retreat to Assyria and Jerusalem was spared. Likewise, in our present time of extreme danger, we should pray for our president that he too should remain firm and seek God's help. Then we shall all pray every day in accordance with 1 Timothy 21 and 5. I exhort, therefore, that first of all supplications and prayer intercession and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. There's a growing consensus that the future of Israel will be determined by 1985. This comes, astonishingly enough, not from Bible prophets, but from historians and those who gathered off our own history and how history repeats itself. Jerusalem, of course, to us, to everybody, is paramount importance. There's nothing that we can watch any better as to the signs of time than Jerusalem. It was brought out in November 1980 edition of the Gospel Truth. Israel is God's timepiece 
and Jerusalem is the minute hand. Israel would not be Israel without Jerusalem and the future rebuilding of the temple. Zechariah says this, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to all the people round about, and when they shall be in siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered against it. 